Glad that you're here this morning, and we are now in the second sermon in our sermon series entitled, The Gospel of Mark, Faith for the Real World. Faith for the Real World. Last Sunday was actually the first Sunday in the sermon series, but it was Father's Day, and so as I mentioned last week, I would be kind of giving the overview or the introductory sermon to this sermon series this week because I felt like dads needed a specific sermon, and so I gave that from the Gospel of Mark, actually from the same passages of Scripture that we're going to be reading in just a few moments. So really the purpose for this morning's sermon is to kind of set the stage for where we're going to be the rest of the summer. I really felt led strongly that the Gospel of Mark was where we were supposed to be, and again, we'll process through that throughout the months of summer. Now, as we move in that direction, I think it's important for me to remind all of us that City Church is built on three pillars. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. What does that mean? Well, biblically-based means is that we search the Scriptures just like what we're going to do this morning, and we look at the Scriptures to determine who God is, what is God trying to speak to us, and what is the kingdom of God like? Relationally driven means that the Bible teaches, Jesus lived and taught, that relationship is the center of life. There's nothing more important than relationships. And then last but not least, the third pillar is we are spirit-led. That means that we're a church that looks to and expects the Holy Spirit to move and to work in and through our lives exactly as he did in the book of Acts and throughout the first century church. Why being spirit-led is important is because we're going to read things and we're going to study things throughout this sermon series on faith for the real world and without the power of the Holy Spirit to live it out, we're not going to be what God wants us to be. So again, we are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. Now, as we move towards this sermon series entitled The Gospel of Mark, Faith for the Real World. I think it's important for us to kind of get some of the background out of the way. And I know for some of us, as we move towards this, you're going to go, eh, this isn't my favorite part. But I want to challenge you to stay clued in, to pay attention. Because each of the four Gospels has a different backstory, and and the Gospel of Mark has a very unique one. So moving in kind of behind the gospel and giving us the backstory has to begin here. Who wrote the gospel of Mark? Mark. Now what's fascinating about that though is that this gospel uniquely takes no credit from the author. It never says who wrote the gospel of Mark. As a matter of fact, the reason why we believe Mark wrote it is because of the ancient church patriarchs tell us this, that in the ancient writings we have, they credit Mark for having written it. Not to confuse you, but Mark is found in the Newer Testament. We're going to discover that in just in a few moments. But it's not just Mark. He's also known by the name John Mark. Same guy. But what's fascinating about Mark or John Mark is how interrelated he is to the Newer Testament, even though he never takes credit for the book. 
Here's what we can discover about him. Here's kind of the cliff notes on Mark or John Mark. First of all, Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, bursts on the scene in the book of Acts. We have not met him prior to that, but as the church is beginning, this infant church is rapidly getting traction in Jerusalem, there's a guy that becomes part of the church in Jerusalem, that first century church, and his name is Barnabas. Again, his name means son of encouragement. He turns out to be the cousin of John Mark. We learn that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. What's unique about Barnabas is when he enters into the gospel story in the book of Acts, we find he sells all the property that he has. And he gives all the money to the church for the spreading of the gospel in Jerusalem and then throughout the areas around Jerusalem as well. He's a very generous person. What else that we discover from the Newer Testament about John Mark is this, is that the church in Jerusalem met in his mother's home. That's Acts chapter 12, verse 12. So the same way that we have life groups, many of those meet in people's homes, the exact same thing was happening in the first century church. They would meet on a Sunday morning just like this in the temple courts, large group, and then they were breaking up into small groups. It's clearly shown in the book of Acts that what we do as a church is exactly what happened in the first century. And so we know from Acts 12, 12, that John Mark's mother was hosting one of those life groups in her home. We also know from Acts chapter 12, verse 25, that Barnabas and John Mark take a missionary journey. As cousins, they take a missionary journey to Cyprus, and they spread the gospel there. And it's clear that Barnabas is the leader, and John Mark is kind of the follower. But where John Mark's story gets very fascinating is because of an interpersonal conflict between two of the first century church leaders. One of them is Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. And the apostle Paul. They get into a conflict and believe it or not, it's over John Mark. And here's why. The Bible tells us and the book of Acts clearly shows us in Acts chapter 13 that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are on a journey. John Mark is part of that journey. And in Acts 13, 13, John Mark wimps out and goes home. Acts tells us this. He just kind of goes home. Well, on the next missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take him. This is Acts chapter 15. Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and the Apostle Paul says, no way. He was a wimp. He kind of wimped out last time. Why would we ever take him again? That's the Apostle Paul. By the way, how many of you sitting here are type A? That's Paul. Paul is total type A. We gave him a shot. He blew it. He's done. Get rid of him. Dump them to the curb, find someone else. But what does Barnabas mean? Son of encouragement. So Barnabas and Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 39, they get into such a hot dispute over John Mark, they part ways. 
And Barnabas takes John Mark, and the Apostle Paul takes a guy named Silas, and they go in separate directions. By the way, if you are checking out faith in Jesus, the Newer Testament is painfully honest about the flaws of its heroes. There was a disagreement that got so heated that Barnabas and the Apostle Paul go in separate directions. But don't we all need both a Barnabas and a Paul in our life? Don't we? We need a Paul. Someone that will confront us and say, you are wrong, get your act together. But then we also need a Barnabas that comes next to us and loves us and encourages us and builds us up and kind of keeps us in the game. How many of you know we need both of these people? How many of you know, though, that you don't like Paul, you like Barnabas? Just tell me how awesome I am and how great of a job. No? But notice the Newer Testament. That's Mark. We also discover as we read into the Newer Testament, we discover not only this, but John Mark then knows the Apostle Paul. He knows Barnabas. And then we also discover in the book of 1 Peter that the Apostle Peter mentions him in chapter 5, verse 13, and he calls Mark his son in the faith. His son in the faith. So somehow, some way, because of Barnabas' encouragement, John Mark hangs in there. We discover that he actually meets Peter, and in meeting Peter, Mark and Peter hit it off to the point where the Apostle Peter writes of him, he is my son in the faith. We also know that the Apostle Peter visited the church that met in Mary's home. The Apostle, Apostle Peter goes to Mary's home, and that is John Mark's mother's house. So here's what we know about John Mark. He knew these powerful people that were leading the first century church. Now, he does not appear definitively in the Gospels. But in his Gospel, in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 through 52, there's this little snippet that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane that appears nowhere else in any of the other three Gospels. There's this little set of verses, there are two verses, that gives this quick description. I want to give you the context. Jesus has been arrested. He is now in the Garden of Gethsemane. While he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, these soldiers come against him. They're arresting Jesus. And in Mark 14, 51 and 52, here's what it tells us. There was a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment who was following Jesus. When they seized Jesus, the young man fled naked, leaving his garment behind. In other words, apparently the Roman soldiers reached out and tried to grab this young guy, and the young guy takes off running and he leaves his garment behind. A lot of theologian and Bible scholars actually believe that that was Mark himself. That Mark added that into the gospel because he was there in the garden and he observed Jesus being arrested. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if that was another reason why Mark does not give the gospel credit to himself. 
Because if you had run naked through the streets of Jerusalem, you might not want to put your name on that gospel either. But again, suffice it to say, as we kind of do a quick backstory to the gospel of Mark, is that here's a guy, John Mark, who knows three of the key patriarchs of the first century church, and there's a clear chance he might have been in the Garden of Gethsemane and saw Jesus get arrested. In this, almost all Bible scholars believe, if they own up to the fact that John Mark wrote this gospel, they believe that ultimately how the gospel was written was that John Mark became the son of the faith to the apostle Peter. Peter was the lead apostle when Jesus was alive before his death, burial, and resurrection. And John Mark learns everything that he writes down by shadowing the apostle Peter. And at the end of Peter's life, or soon after, John Mark writes the first of the four gospels. We know that Mark is the oldest gospel of the four. Now, as I mention all of these things, and I give us kind of the quick Cliff Notes version of the backstory of the Gospel of Mark, the question might be at the outset, why should I be excited or even care? Why should I get excited about Mark, a gospel for the real world, or faith for the real world? Why should I even care? Well, first of all, if you are a Christian, please know this that over the next several weeks, the Gospel of Mark is going to confront us as to whether or not Jesus is truly at the center of our lives. Truly. If you are not a Christian, but you've been coming to city and you're looking over the wall of faith, I would encourage you to be part of this sermon series. And the reason why is, is that Jesus is brought out in ways in the Gospel of Mark that is so crystal clear and take comfort in this, that no one in the gospel, unlike some of the other gospels, no one in the gospel of Mark comes to the point where they understand who Jesus is until after his death, burial, and resurrection. So just like you, if you're checking out faith, it's a gospel that highlights the fact that people had to take time and they had to observe Jesus and come to understand before they would put their faith, hope, and trust in him. But here's the other thing I want you to think about, and the reason why I want you to be excited about the Gospel of Mark. You cannot have a relationship with anyone unless you have information about them. You can't. Information about them, though, does not mean that you actually have a relationship with that person. You can have information about people and never have a relationship. But I can tell you that as it is with people, it's also true with Jesus. If we don't have information, we can't have a relationship with him, but I want to challenge you. This sermon series is not just for the purpose of information. It's so that you can get to know him informationally but through faith, get to know him more deeply relationally as well. Now, as we get ready to read the same text we read last week, I want to begin by saying this. You will notice that in the first sentence we get re we're getting ready to read, it will use the following word, good news. 
It's going to use this word, the good news of Jesus. The good news means gospel. The word gospel in the ancient world was the Greek word euangelion. And that Greek word means news that transforms the world. The word gospel means news that transforms the world. It's not just good news, it's good news that literally is being set out there because the world will never be the same. The word was initially used when there were births in royal families. The good news of the birth of the next ruler of some nation, Eungelion. So when the gospel pulls that word in, it's making a clear statement that what we're getting ready to read, what we're getting ready to look at over the next several weeks is news that transforms the world. Let's read Mark chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading down all the way to verse number 14. Please read with me. Mark 1, 1 and following. Here's what the scripture says. Mark writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We looked at what that meant two Sundays ago, the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Reading on, this, the gospel tells us, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the euangelion. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Listen, we just read the first five paragraphs of the Gospel of Mark. We just read them. And as we read the Gospel of Mark, I think there's something that almost all of us probably took note of. Did you notice? There's no Christmas. What a bummer. There's no Christmas. Now up to one-third of the gospel will be about Easter, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but there's nothing about Christmas. And the question is often why. 
Why is it that the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark do not mention Christmas? Here's why. The virgin birth is important, but what's absolutely important is the resurrection. So at the very beginning, Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sets up his gospel so that you are focused on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You probably noticed as we read that his gospel takes off with hyperspeed. It just begins with, hey, here's the gospel of Jesus, boom, here it is. You notice that? What's, inter what's interesting is that he introduces some people to us. I want to list them to us, kind of the actors in the play. He begins by mentioning the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is the most quoted Older Testament book in the Newer Testament other than the book of Psalms. At the time of Jesus... Everyone was reading the book of Isaiah that, that was able to read, and the reason for it was Isaiah is in a time when Israel was under bondage of the Babylonian Empire, the time of Jesus. There's a parallel scenario where the people of God are in bondage to the Roman Empire. So people were praying and reading the book of Isaiah, and they were finding hope. They were finding prophecies about the future. They were finding things that would allow them to have hope in the midst of the oppression of where they were, similar to how we read Scripture. They were reading it similarly. Mark introduces us to this passage from Isaiah and then tells us very quickly that John the Baptist fulfilled that. Then he introduces God the Father. Then he introduces the Holy Spirit. And then he introduces Jesus the following way that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Why would Mark have to deal with John the Baptist? You know, he introduces him as one that the book of Isaiah foretold. He presents John the Baptist as, hey, listen, remember the prophecy in Isaiah? John the Baptist has fulfilled that. And as he presents John the Baptist to us, he describes him. Here's how John the Baptist is described. He appears in the wilderness, not in Jerusalem, not where other people would have gone to preach. No, he's in the wilderness. And John the Baptist is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The book of Isaiah tells us that he is preparing the way for the Lord. The Bible also tells us in Mark 1.5, Mark tells us that the entire Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem are going out to see John and to listen to him preach and to be baptized in the Jordan River. It also tells us what he's wearing. He's wearing clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate bugs and honey. Now some of us sitting here are going... He sounds like he's a cool guy. As a matter of fact, he dresses weird and eats weird food. You're thinking, just go to the downtown mall. <laughs> a lot of people down there dress weird, eat weird food. Man, he would fit right in. But here's the issue. He's not in downtown Charlottesville. He's out in the wilderness. And he's preaching in the wilderness. And what you have to know is in the ancient Israelite mind, the wilderness is always the place of evil. 
John the Baptist is in the desert and he's preaching a repentance and people are stepping into that place of evil and they're confessing their sins and they're being made right with God, preparing the way to the Lord. You know what's amazing is, is that ancient historians mention John the Baptist. Josephus, who is an ancient historian, mentions him as a political religious force. You see, in our day and age, the Daily Progress or the Cav paper or maybe streaking the lawn would be mentioning. By the way, that's actually an online. For those of you who are unfamiliar with UVA, streaking the lawn is an online little periodical where you read current history about UVA. Didn't want you to think I was being weird. (laughs) But all of them would have mentioned John the Baptist. He was the best-known religious figure before Jesus stepped onto the scene. And what John the Baptist is doing is he's preparing the way for the Lord. And Mark looks at John the Baptist, and Mark writes to us that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. And John the Baptist's purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus. And he introduces us to him because everyone had heard of him. He would have been the Billy Graham of his day. And here Mark mentions him. But not only does he point to John the Baptist, but he tells us what John the Baptist said. John the Baptist, as famous as he was, announced from the beginning that the one who he would point to the one that he would point out was more powerful than he was. And John said from the beginning, if you think I'm something, wait until you meet the guy that I point out to you. Because John said, I will baptize you with water. But the one that I will point out, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, John is saying, if you think I'm something, watch out. Let's see what happens next. Not only this, but the way Mark writes his gospel is very profound because as soon as John the Baptist makes that declaration about Jesus, Jesus is then baptized in water. And the Bible tells us in verse 10 that as Jesus is coming up out of the water, it says that heaven is torn apart. The Holy Spirit comes down and flutters over Jesus like a dove. And God the Father announces from heaven, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. What's happening here? I want you to catch this. We absolutely cannot miss what Mark is saying. Here's what Mark is saying to you and me. That the Older Testament mentioned John the Baptist. The Older Testament pointed to John. John was not happenstance. He was the fulfillment of prophecy. John the Baptist, though, points at who? Jesus. John the Baptist definitively points at Jesus. And what does God the Father do? He points at Jesus. What does the Holy Spirit do? He points at Jesus. Everything in the first three paragraphs is yelling to you and me, it's about Jesus. It's all about him. 
The idea is, is Mark wants you to meet Jesus. This made me think about when I had met my wife. We met in grad school, and she was taking me home to introduce me to her family. I remember this clearly. I also remember the first time I ever saw Fran. The Holy Spirit put two words in my mouth, hubba hubba. <laughs> and I thought, oof. And I began to deal with God. You ever see someone, you're like, wow, she, you know, forgive me. I'm thinking, she's hot looking. And I, you know, we're in grad school and I want to get next to her. So don't you deal with God, dear God, you know, if you'll let me sit next to her. I will, I'll, I'll go to Africa as a missionary. I'll do anything, you know. You ever do that kind of thing and you're bartering with God and I would sit next to Fran and I really like going to one church because in that church the pastor would say, hold hands while we pray. Thank you, Jesus. And I would sit there and just feel God's presence, right? You know, we're holding hands. And... Anyway, we start dating and we're home for a holiday and Fran says, I'm going to take you to meet my family. So we go in to meet the family. Now, what you need to understand is, here's my family. My mom and dad, Alan and Jackie, and two brothers, Fred and Scott. Doesn't that all sound vanilla? <laughs> Alan, Jackie, Fred, Scott, Pete. End of story. I go to meet her family. I expected to meet five people. I walk in the door. This is Joey Piccioni. Okay, Joe Piccioni. Now, also, I've got a nephew, Joe Piccioni. Okay, so you're Joe, you're Joe. Yep, yep. Not only that, there's an uncle, Joe. Okay, I got that. And they're all in the room, right? So it's like Joe, Joe, Joe. But by the way, he's Joey, he's Joseph, he's Joe. Don't mess that up. Got it, got it, right? Then you turn around and they say, okay, this is my brother, Charlie. We call him Chaz. And the reason is, is Fran's dad's name is Charlie, and then Chaz has a son named Charlie. So now you've got Charlie, 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 you've got Joe, Joey, Joseph, and you're just fun. And I'm meeting the family. It wasn't five vanilla people. It was like a herd of people. And they're all coming up, and they're all hugging and kissing and loving. And I grew up in a German home. Where you just kind of like, wow, how you doing? You know, that stiff, long, and they're coming up, they're hugging, you know, mom and dad, or so I called Fran's mom and dad, mom and dad, and they'd come up, they'd hug and kiss and the whole thing. And I clearly remember sitting in the corner and I didn't want to leave. And it wasn't because I loved it so much, it's because I recognized everyone kissed Fran's dad before they left. By the way, her maiden name was Pachoni. It's like a full-blown Italian family. And there was zero chance I was going to kiss that dude before I left. <laughs> so I'm just kind of sitting in the corner, and I'm like, ah, I don't want to get up, and how can I get out of here? And there's a Joey and a Charlie, and I can't remember any of their names, and I remember Dominic, because Dominic was her brother, that the name wasn't repeated 500 times throughout the family, and so I'm kind of sitting there, and, but what was cool is Fran went around, she introduced me to all these people, but I want you to notice what happens that was so different than what happened with Fran's family. Fran introduced me to everyone else. In this story, what happens is Mark introduces us to Jesus and everyone in the room wants to make sure you don't miss Jesus. All of them. John the Baptist, it's about Jesus. The book of Isaiah, it's about Jesus. God the Father, it's about Jesus. 
the Holy Spirit, it's about Jesus. Mark tries to introduce you to these other key players throughout the gospel, and all of them are pointing at one person, Jesus. And that's the beginning of the gospel. We have to understand so clearly that yes, the Trinity exists. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We're going to deal with the Trinity in two weeks. But suffice it to stay here and now that Jesus, God the Son, had been in the background for a period of time. He does appear in the Older Testament. But he's been in the background for a period of time, and it's almost as though God the Father and God the Spirit had been involved overtly in the Older Testament. You can just see it. And when Jesus steps on the stage, you can hear God the Father cheering, God the Spirit hovering, the book of Isaiah pointing, John the Baptist pointing and saying, it's about Jesus. It's about him. Don't miss him. And when he's introduced to us, God the Father declares him a son. Please know this. He is not introduced in the Gospel of Mark as a moral teacher. Jesus is not introduced in the Gospel of Mark as someone who brings in a new philosophy. Jesus is not introduced as someone that will bring in a new moral code, a new ethic. Absolutely not. The entire Godhead is shouting, it's about Jesus. And he's introduced as the Son of God, as the Messiah. Please know that the Gospel of Mark has this skyrocket trajectory because he wants you to know it's about Jesus. But he also wants you to know it's relational too. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit appear in his inaugural event. God is truly a relational God. It's so important to get that. But as we were completing the reading of our gospel, as we completed that reading, it ends with kind of a difficult tone. It says that Jesus exits the waters of baptism where God cheers and the Holy Spirit points on him, but someone else took notice too. It was Satan. And when Jesus exits the waters of baptism, he moves out into the desert. And when he does, Satan is waiting for him and he tests him and he tries him. For those of you who like intellectual depth, what you need to grab a hold of is this, is that Jesus is now being presented as the second Adam. The first Adam was born and introduced into the world, but Satan came and deceived the first Adam, and he deceived him through a tree. Jesus is being called to go to a tree. Satan says to Adam, you can eat of the tree and you will not die. God says to Jesus, you will go to a tree and you will surely die. Will you be obedient to me? And there's zero doubt by reading the other Gospels that as Jesus exits the waters of baptism, Satan tries to tempt him to redeem humankind 
another way other than the cross. It's clear. Now the Bible tells us, and the end of our reading shows us, that Jesus in the waters of baptism, everyone is pointing to him and the enemy of our soul takes notice. Jesus exits the waters and for 40 days he is tried and tempted by the enemy of our soul. And when Jesus steps into his earthly ministry, it tells us this. John was put in prison. It's a clear call from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark that the Christian life is not a bed of roses. The Gospel of Mark is clear from the beginning that we have an adversary of our soul. But it's also clear from the beginning that just because you go through tough times does not mean that you are not following God. John the Baptist fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy and yet he found himself imprisoned for his faith and his declaration about Jesus. The scripture tells us in the last sentence that we read that Jesus steps onto the world stage and here's what he says. The time has come and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Would you stand with me? As we stand together, before the worship team leads us, I want to ask that you would close your eyes in God's presence. We began by taking communion at the end of worship. In our elements, we held the body and the cup. The bread, the body of Christ, the cup is shed blood. Now we conclude our time together. And as we do, I would like for you to take a moment and to stand before Jesus. The book of Isaiah said it's about him. The Holy Spirit hovered over him. God the Father said it's about him. And as we stand into his presence and we close our eyes, I have this thought before we worship. And it's important. Some of you have had an aversion to Christianity because you've been told it's narrow. It's narrow. I want to tell you, Christianity is about Jesus. That's why it's narrow. It's about a person. It's not about an ethic, a philosophy, or a moral code. It's about a person. And his name is Jesus. That doesn't make it narrow. It makes it true and honest. And it makes it welcoming. Because this thing called Christianity is relational. It's about a person. And the Gospel of Mark wants you to know that. But it's a person who's the Messiah, the Son of God. And he is in a real world. John's been arrested. It's real world stuff. Dear God, as we stand into your presence, Touch our hearts. Touch our lives. Help us to be a group of people who look at you as Mark wants us to. In Jesus' name.